wait a minute. Wait, 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 wait. I'm new in town and I'm awfully lonely. I wondered if you wouldn't mind buying me lunch. Wait, wait, hold on. You can't tell. Gregory, this will. Ah! Something from the bar. Isn't yeah. that amazing? Please, could you get, get huh? me a double vodka right away? You know? For the lady? Oh, <clears throat> how about a uh, Dubonnet with a twist? Yes, ma'am. Thank you. That's a lovely glass. Thank you. Welcome. Welcome to the Ricochet podcast called Glop, Glop Culture. Goldberg, Long, Podhoritz. This is Podhoritz, John Podhoritz, speaking to you from just south of... Times Square, and somewhere else in New York is Rob Long, the major domo of Ricochet and television like writer that. extraordinaire. Hi, Rob. John, how you doing? I'm I'm, I'm all right. And uh, Jonah Goldberg in Washington, up now for about seven hours because he has to walk his dingo at I don't know. It appears to be like three in the morning. Uh, is that correct? Yeah, I, 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 my it's the it's the friggin' spaniel that wakes me up. At right. Every morning at uh, 10 to 6, uh, regardless of how late either of us went to bed. And then she, she wakes me up by getting the dingo all worked up. And then it's my life is a Disney movie. So, yeah. But I'm, I'm, I'm listening to a lot of uh, uh, Hugh Hewitt's new radio show out of uh, D.C. now. So there's that. Yeah? How is it? It's good. It's good. It's I mean, good. I miss Bill Bennett's, but, you know, it's, it's good stuff. We can talk about that if we like. And, and he, uh, his, his position on some of these things seems relevant to some of the things we might be discussing. But, uh, <laughs> anyway. And I don't think, for the record, I don't think Rob is the major domo. I don't of, think I am either, no. Of Ricochet. Isn't her, isn't her major domo like the head valet? Yeah, it's like he's, the, he's like a little bit one step above from the, the butler, I think, or the concierge. And well, there's one I thing I can't as, do. I think of you as the as the uh, gopher of uh, like from the purser. Love the boat. Purser. No, You're the I'm, purser. You know, I'm I'm the I mean, guy at the cruise line in the office who doesn't really know what's happening on the cruise lines, and it just like looks at the invoice and says, "What do they need all that butter for? They really need all that prime rib." Isaac, water, Isaac, yeah. water down the yeah. water down the scotch. Your, your, yeah, remember, your scotch is uh, too expensive. Yeah. Exactly. Remember, put that's more, the thing about cruise ice, business. Put like, more ice in the pina colada. Yeah, they, they take Lender. your money before you get there. And so when you get there, it's all about getting more of your money, right? It's like that they don't expect – there's no bill at the end. You've already paid. And so then they're just trying to shake you down every time you turn around. That's the cruise business. A good business for that, that respect. Fortunately, we don't have uh, any uh, – Cruise ships as an advertiser, so that we just lost them. But uh, <laughs> oh yeah, well the National yeah. Review Cruise, of course, they has it has ancillary and additional value because you get to sort of you know spend the day and uh, spend some mornings and stuff uh, watching panels and hearing interesting speakers. Yeah. Now, I was uh, going to say, it, as it, both of you guys have been on many cruises from my fine organization, yeah. uh, we need to revise and extend your remarks a little uh, well, bit. That, that's what I'm. I'm I, <laughs> I, I do work for. America's foremost right-wing cruise company that puts out a nice little magazine on the side. That That's is exactly. absolutely true. And That's I want exactly. to point out to people that uh, the three of us will be on the National Review post-election yeah. cruise in 2016, which sounded like it was going to be a lot more fun 
done in 2015 when I, I agreed disagree. to go on it than it sounds like just about now. But, um, but you know, that's me. I am, uh, I am hopeful. Here's what – I'm hopeful. I think – not that we're going to win. I know we're going to lose. But I think that we're going to lose in a way that helps us reshape and rethink stuff. It's going to be fun. It's going to be great. I don't know. I, I think President Trump is going to send the Coast Guard out and not allow the boat back. Oh, well, then, then yeah. Well, yeah, if, there's a pres- <laughs> if there's a President Trump, I hope the boat doesn't come back. Yeah. But hey, um, that's just yeah. me. Let me revise and extend those remarks. Yeah, I don't think that's going to happen, Jonah. But um, I, I, I don't either. I don't. Yeah. Um, so, gentlemen, one of the reasons that it is not uh, entirely preposterous to speculate that there might be a President Trump just for like five seconds, if you really enjoy living a waking nightmare, is uh, uh, there were the results of uh, New York, New York's primary uh, this week. In which uh, Trump, for the first time, scored a majority, yeah. an outright majority of Republican voters, got sixty uh, percent uh, of the vote and ninety-one of the ninety-five delegates in the state, thus uh, making him the only person now who is mathematically it is mathematically conceivable could be the nominee of the Republican Party on the first ballot. <clears throat> for my for my perspective. Uh, the most telling event of Tuesday night was Ted Cruz's absolutely horrific showing. And the reason I say that is that, granted, mm-hmm. Cruz was going to do badly. He said the thing months ago about how New York values are bad and New York is a very nationalistic state and even more – I don't know what you call Empire it na- – federalistically nationalistic state – and even more so since 9-11. So he was going to suffer for that. But a cruise that had succeeded in Wisconsin in appearing to have begun to coalesce the party around him that did not wish Trump to be the nominee right. took, about, took about five steps backward. That was, on, but did, didn't Tuesday. we expect that a little bit? I mean, uh, you know, this Trump's home state. I mean, the, the fun part of yeah, not uh, that Tuesday lose, Not that he would lose to John Kasich. Not that he would lose by yeah, 10, I don't know. 10 points. 10 points. Oh, I don't know. Every, if, if, look, if you, if you go into the voting booth and think, okay, Trump's going to win, so who, but who do I really like? Kasich seems like a New York Republican's kind of Republican. It was fun, though, to look at the maps and to see, you know, Park Slope. Uh, you know, number of Trump voters zero. Number of 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 Kasich voters one. Like right. there's one guy, <laughs> Parks, a very sort of liberal part of Brooklyn. One guy, boy, he must be lonely, or maybe he made a mistake. I think he meant Bernie, <laughs> and he got confused, or they gave him the wrong ballot. I was actually gave a speech in Cornell. I was giving a speech on Tuesday night, and um, so we all had dinner afterwards. And at like nine oh three, um. We said, oh, hey, the polls are closed. Let's check. And so we all checked our phones and I went to the New York Times site, which actually is really, really good, the mobile site for, on, on election night. And uh, it had this amazing – at 9.03, I look at the map of New York and it's like nothing yet. And then at 9.09, you press refresh and it's, it's, like, it's, like, it's like New York State was, State was infected because all <laughs> these blotches are all over the place. <laughs> it's really it, – it does look like a very, very sad health map. Um, but you know, I'm I'm maintaining. We can take that um, metaphor pretty far if we want it. Yes, just keep it does. going. Yeah, like a rash. I am maintaining a um a positive outlook. 
Okay, it's good. But I, I, I also want to point out that um, uh, the neighborhood oh. that Jonah grew up in and that I live in uh, went for Kasich um, by about 12 points. And Kasich, of course, won Manhattan over Trump. And when you say 12 uh, that's, points, that's probably like 12 votes, actually 12 no, it votes. No, it was more votes than – it was more votes than you might might expect. It was certainly like more votes than were cast in the Wyoming caucus. <laughs> so I don't know why, <laughs> why that doesn't count. <laughs> oh, how, many, how, so how, many, how many Cruz voters were there up there? How many, how many, how many individual votes were cast for Cruz? Do we know? Um, well, uh, like we over 100,000, right? Where in New York State? In New York State entirely. I don't mean New York State. Yeah. I mean Manhattan yeah. or New York oh, City even. Yeah. Um, well, we can find nine? that. Yeah, it's like nine. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I just, I, I just want to make this point, which is that to the extent that one believes that Republican voters are serious, they want to win the nomination, they understand a lot of, a lot of people, 60% of the party does not want Trump to be the nominee. And so you look at the map and you look at this and you look at that and you see who has more delegates, blah, blah, blah. And um, the fact that Cruz in the middle of April uh, was unable to just get to say 25 percent of the vote in New York State because he had begun to make the case, a successful case, that he was A, the only one who could beat Trump on the second ballot and B, that he was, all things considered, closer to the consensus view in the Republican Party than Trump. This is a real failure by Cruz and I, I don't I – don't, I think we can't underestimate it. We're going to see – now, in state after state, uh, Trump rolling, and the question is going to be: Can Cruz show any ability to garner public support? We know he can play the delegate game very right. well. We know that right. he is very good right. at the, you know, at, at figuring yeah. out how to use Republican activists to get delegates. But that's the problem, isn't that the problem with him? He, he, he has a hard time doing that because he's not an appealing candidate. I mean. Uh, well, well you, I you agree know, with if, you. But you're, if your big appeal is, "Hey, listen, I'm not orange-faced weirdo. I'm not. I don't say crazy things. I'm not sure that's really it doesn't fit on a bumper sticker, does it?" Well, but also, I mean, I, I, look, I agree with John on his on on your larger point, and um, uh, you know, in the column that you made that you wrote for the Post on how Cruz needs to have a narrative of looking like a winner, or he's got a real problem going into the convention. At the same time, if you work from the assumption that you have real scarce resources, right, and you know Trump is going to win New York no matter what, and you, you know probably from your data that he's probably going to break 50 percent no matter what, campaigning particularly hard in New York when you've got to lay the groundwork in Indiana and in California um, is, is a pretty heavy lift given that it's basically just throwing money in a burning garbage can. Right? I, totally, um, I totally agree with you. I'm not saying that he should have campaigned in New York. I'm saying that if he were the guy who was going to be the person to overtake Trump at the convention and that was mm -hmm. clear to people in the Republican electorate nationwide that he should have passively done better in New York than he did, yeah, not actively. Yeah. I'm not saying that he should have you know, made a real effort to run up well, his vote total. Uh, but possible? the fact – yeah. Is it possible? I mean, here's another idea. Like, isn't it possible people are just tired? They're like, there does seem to be this. <laughs> I mean, people I talk to this sense that like, all right, it's going to be Trump. And I think on the on the other side, it's like, all right, it's going to be her. Like, people <laughs> are kind of ready for this to be over, and they're tired, and they just feel like, well, why am I fighting so hard? 
um, there's no way that 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 the an alternate candidate is going to actually have enough votes to get the nominee nomination on the first ballot. Now we're talking about the second ballot and a third ballot. That's going to be exhausting. I think every Republican I talk to just this. Oh my God, Cleveland's just going to be this just exhausting mess. Let me just sleep until then. You know, let me just like let me cut down on the carbs, try to get healthy, so I can like you know approach this week. Or, and I think the part of the part of what's happening is that uh, that uh, that the, the people who really do have energy for it, the people who really are excited for it, are the Trump voters, right. and well, they're the ones who really think that's going to happen. And they, and and I, and I think they're right. I, I think I think he could win this on the first ballot. Well, look, there's evidence to, to support your claim in this, which is that the turnout in New York State there are two and a half million low. registered Republicans, eight hundred thousand voted. So that was a vote le- around thirty one percent. Yeah, it's like right. <clears throat> this isn't a historic. Turnout numbers that we've you know never seen before. It is right. right. He got sixty percent of a thirty percent turnout. Yeah, it's really it's, it's, it's a it's a you know it's sort of an Oiga vault turnout. Like ah oh, yeah, just you go, just do it. I, it's too much trouble. Right, right. The people who are disgusted by Donald Trump don't actually like John Kasich or Ted Cruz either. And so I mean, I just so they didn't show up. Right. And I I just I basically think that. New York is being wildly overanalyzed. Um, I think that <laughs> – Which is true all the time. Constantly, like a, yeah. And New Yorkers Trump, like to analyze you – know, are always – they're all in analysis. Yeah, go ahead. And, and the whole – you know, the, the to me, Pennsylvania is a vastly more interesting contest, right? I mean Trump had the home state advantage and he got fewer Republican votes than Ted Cruz got in Wisconsin, which has a much smaller population. Um, it is just not a normal – it can't be a bellwether uh, really of anything. Um, and so – Yeah, the, but neither can Pennsylvania because it's got these bizarre rules according to which almost all the delegates the state right. is going to award uh, are unbound. So well, yeah, a lot but, of them are but, saying but, they'll go with the I, I agree with that, but the they, voting they patterns are – but the voting – the underlying voting patterns that select you know, these bizarre delegates who have to like ride on a white horse with a feather in their left hand and all that, um, I agree that the delegate system is ridiculous. But the, how the voters actually vote is just more interesting. I'm not saying it's hugely important. I think Trump wins all of the stuff coming up. He wins Pennsylvania. He wins Rhode Island. He wins all that. All of that is priced in to his uh, delegate projections so far. And that's why the only really interesting thing coming up is Indiana and then California. The, um, and I, I think, I think Rob, you're wrong in the sense that uh, something really unusual has to happen for, for Trump to get to twelve thirty seven before the convention. Maybe something little, unusual get, keeps happening every every ten minutes in this race. Nothing unusual happened in New York. You know, I mean, he, he won what ten to fifteen more delegates right. than than it was projected. The more unusual stuff is the stuff that Cruz has been able to pull out. You know, um, I think one of the things that were, you know, there was too much. There was too much of an era of good feeling after Wisconsin, where everyone was like, "Aha, we can finally see this guy going under." And and all the smart people said, um, "Don't get too worked up about this. Don't get don't get too confident because the narrative is going to change at New York." And then that turned out to be exactly true. And intellectually, all of us knew that Trump was going to win in New York, and yet it feels it feels so much worse. Than it actually is, but isn't that a good? Isn't that a good um, uh, sign for him? I mean, I'm just talking about my, my own sheer exhaustion. 
Um, <laughs> isn't it a good sign for Trump that like he's got the, the narrative is oh, I hate using that term the, the momentum the media momentum says oh he's pretty strong. So then when you go to you know Indiana and Pennsylvania and Maryland it's like ah. Let's just get this over with. Yeah, let's just, let's just take Fiona, the medicine uh, and get it over with. Manafort is very smart to say that they've got the strategy of getting 1,400 delegates by the convention, which is utter freaking nonsense. I mean he would have to win 82% of all the remaining delegates to do that. That's just simply mathematically not going to happen. But people believe it. It, it feeds this error, error of inevitability. And yeah, Rob, it's absolutely true. That it's always good for the barbarians when the guys manning the gates to keep the barbarians out get exhausted. Uh, yeah, yeah, right. more but barbarians. I, but I wanna, um, but, but also, I would say, say this: isn't the most terrifying thing you can think of if, if you if you believe, as I think everybody on this podcast believes, and and if you don't believe it, then you're probably already turned it off in rage. But if you believe that the Trump candidacy is a bad thing for the Republican Party, it, it isn't the, the scariest thing not so much. Um, that uh, that he's winning delegates, it's that he's he's replacing his homegrown weirdo, eccentric, totally untutored political operatives with operatives that have done this before, with and are kind of professional, kind of turning this into a professional campaign. You know, yes. Trump, the professional campaigner, yes. should kind of make you a little squirrely in your um, undergarments. Absolutely, but I just want to I want to push back on the hey look we knew he was going to win New York he's going to win these states it's going to be a bad couple of weeks but then it'll turn around the problem with that kind of <clears throat> don't worry you know we all knew this was going to happen this is a moment where Trump is going to have a good couple of weeks is it's a terrible time for Trump to have a good couple of weeks like this is the moment this is the hinge moment at which. Ted Cruz needs to be making the case that or has to have made the case or the case needs to be present before the American people that Trump is a danger or to the Republican Party that Trump is a danger. And if he wins New York, followed by Connecticut, followed by Delaware, followed by um, Maryland, followed by – there's one other state I'm not thinking of and then, of course, Pennsylvania. So he then goes and he wins six states in a row, big states, big population states, even though they're not – none of them is likely to be a Republican state in November. And then suddenly the idea <clears throat> becomes if Cruz doesn't win Indiana, then everything is over. It does matter. Like you have to be really deep in the weeds to say, look, OK, we're, we're, we're surrendering the next six states just at the moment when Trump is like, right. you know, hinging on the possibility of getting to twelve thirty-seven. Now there may not be anything to be done about it, which means that Cruz may be maximizing every possible strength that he has, but he has a weakness, an existential weakness as a candidate that he cannot answer, which is that he, which is that by the time Indiana rolls around, he will have won. Nine states and Trump will have won twenty seven. Yeah, we, um, can I? Uh, there's no answer. There's right. no answering yeah. that. There isn't, and 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 the, the kind of the attitude about it is gets gets weirder and, weirder and scarier and scarier. We once wrote just to bring it back to popular culture because I'm already now depressed. We have to change the subject. Yes. But uh, we once wrote the scene. Uh, uh, yeah, a thousand years ago. If you're under forty, you won't remember it. Uh, for for an episode of Cheers, where um. Uh, one character there 
is alone at the bar with Norm, who's the bar fly, and was sitting on a stool. And the one character was like downstage, and she was crying and crying and crying. And they were the only two people in the bar, crying and crying and crying. And he, like, you know, we got a big laughs on him. Like, what do you what do you say? You know, he didn't really want to like go and sit down next to her and console her. He didn't know what to say, and people laughing. Then he finally got, gets up and sits down next to her. And then gives her this advice. He says, they're there. And everybody laughs. And he goes, um, something will happen that will turn this all around. <laughs> and then she looks at him and is like, that's it? That's what you got? That's it? That's, that's, that's the only you – know, yeah, yeah, something – Something will happen and it'll turn it all around. <laughs> and I kind of feel like since since October, since September, since August, even I've been saying to myself and to people, ah, they're there. Something is going to happen that'll turn it all around. And I don't think that's going to happen. I don't think right. it's going to happen. So I am preparing psychologically and emotionally for um, President Hillary Clinton, and I think we all should. Well, you know, I, I, one of the things that, that fascinates me is that there's a new uh, con, con, consensus among serious election watchers, and that is that – Does that include me? No. Okay. And that, that is uh, – there is no such thing as momentum. Uh, what matters are demographics. It, it, uh-huh. This election is a story about how states that are built a certain way with a certain – percentage of voters that are like this and a certain percentage of voters that are like that all vote exactly the same way. So there's no such thing as momentum. And so you can look at the calendar and be totally deterministic and say, Trump's going to win here. Hillary's going to win there. Bernie might win here. Hillary's going to win there. Trump's going to win here. Um, and this then dovetails nicely into the number of people that we've seen over the last month to six weeks who say vote, voting doesn't matter. What matters is the delegates. Forget about the voting. The voting is silly. Uh, the voting, you know, the voting is uh, sort of a cover for what's really going on, which is the delegate war. And so, the delegate war is what matters. There's no momentum, and the yeah. delegate war is what matters. And voters don't matter, and momentum doesn't matter. Except, right. Trump is going to win six states in a row, and momentum is going to matter because it's going to affect ha- what happens in yeah, Indiana and Nebraska. And this notion, there, while. Trump is – it is preposterous for Trump to claim that you know he has had votes stolen – delegates stolen from him in these states and it's not fair because of the way delegates are unequally counted because he's got 38 percent of the vote and 48 percent of the delegates. So uh, a fraudulent delegate math is working in his favor, not against him. So all of that is ridiculous. Nonetheless, a system in which people are in an effort to make themselves feel better – Forced to make these arguments where they say, eh, voting doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Momentum doesn't matter. Everything that we know that matters mm-hmm. in politics doesn't matter because I've come up with a new deterministic proof that things are going to happen the way I want them to happen right. is, I think, has proven itself to be a comfortable fantasy, sort of like the lane fantasy. Well, so now the, we have the candidate. There's something nice about ever a had a lane. Right, but there's a can- the candidate who never had a lane right, is the right. one who's winning who's winning the Republican nomination. Uh, Hillary never had a lane. <clears throat> Bernie had a lane, and Hillary didn't have a lane. She had everything else, and she's going to end up being the nominee. So all of these, um, you know, things that fashionable things that pop up between every election to tell us how things are really going to work, and that, oh, here's the real key. Here's right, the real right, right. secret formula. Yes. Um, once again, uh, everyone has been sold a bill of goods. Yeah. 
That's right. <clears throat> but that, isn't that normal? I mean, Jonah, don't you think that yeah. the bill of goods is almost always being sold? Uh, it's always for sale. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you have as many pundit, political pundits as, as, as voted uh, in the Republican ballot uh, in, in New York practically. So everybody's got <laughs> yeah, a differentiate. Like, there's this great – one of my favorite um, little passages from one of my – probably my favorite – one of my favorite books uh, by Robert Nisbet called Prejudices. And he's got this great little story he tells about how – in the run-up to World War II, they got um, they got a bunch of old artillery officers and, and from an artil- a bunch of old soldiers from an artillery company um, to take the artillery pieces out of mothballs because they needed to figure out how to shoot them again, right? And so they do this whole thing and they set up. Um, uh, the procedure, and they do it, and there's this weird moment where like three guys go and stand off to the right with their one arm up, and the general watching this, they're trying to figure out why do they do that, right? Why is this part of the procedure? And finally, the general squints, looks at it, and says, oh, that's right. They're supposed to be holding the horses. And the problem is that they didn't use horses anymore. But the the tradition, the, the the procedure, the ritual was sort of caught up in it, and no one had sort of updated it. And that's one of the reasons why I love all of this delegate stuff, because it's like, you know, they had this, they had this piece in the New York Times where a bunch of these guys who were part of the floor fights for Reagan Ford right. are being consulted about all this, and this guy's like, Look, "Man, I'm 89 like years old. You know, I don't remember." And there's all of this stuff that that. You know, everyone's saying, "Oh, it's so undemocratic! It's so undemocratic." The reason why it—it's like getting a stress test. All of a sudden, all of these like old pieces of equipment in the Republican Party right. are all <laughs> of a sudden right. being asked to be put to service. Is because they haven't been necessary. It's that normally any Republican who made it this far, everyone would just right. sort of say, "Well, who cares if the." Delegates in Pennsylvania aren't bound. Of course, they're going to vote for Mitt Romney or right. for Ronald. Exactly. Or, and now, all of a sudden, it turns out that there's a reason why these mechanisms exist. And for me, you know, I think you know, and, and Michael Graham makes this point all the time. He says, "Look, the point of the entire primary system is to get someone that the entire party can unify around. And if you don't do that, you have to ask the delegates." to order off menu and come up with somebody that they can all agree on. And I personally think I'd be perfectly happy if everybody rallied around Ted Cruz. He's not my first choice, but I think he's a serious guy. He's, an, he's a conservative. He's principled. But if that's not going to happen, I don't think it's going to be John Kasich. Um, uh, but, um, Kasich Mentum? Last night on Special Report, I compared him to the uh, Black Knight from Monty Python. Because, you know, he goes into battle. He gets his like, arms sliced off. <laughs> you know, loses yeah. terribly. Says, ah, it's nothing. I can still defeat it's a you. Fresh wound. <laughs> and so the thing is, I think that uh, um, that's the point of a party is to find someone everyone can agree on. That's why these mechanisms are there. And I think it's fascinating to watch this sort of stress test happen in real time. Does not bother as someone who's never voluptuized democracy to begin with. I think this is all fascinating and great, and I'm enjoying it. My problem is, I think it just it, it's probably going to end badly. Right. But <laughs> I think you're, you're I think you're absolutely you're absolutely right in all this like hilarious. <clears throat> what does rule 40B actually mean? Does it mean if you have eight to the eight right. to the eight um, state delegations have to 
provide written proof that they're going to support somebody on the first ballot. It's like it, it is I like don't that, know. Yeah. It is like those movies where it's like where 2000. You, it's like I don't know. Yeah. So the chat is hanging. How do you yeah. count? I don't it is, know. It is when like the movies never happened before. <laughs> you have to go find the nerd. You know, where's the kid who knows this stuff? Like, and he's you know, in the worst office, the tiniest cubicle, and he's sitting there. He's got the old Dell computer. Nobody's ever talked to him. Like, he's that kid. He's the guy. He's um, the guy from Office Space with the stapler. I forget his name. You know, they, it's that guy. Yeah. And he and he's the only one who really knows. And he's and the well, actual, also, I, I love this notion of like, like whoever wrote Rule Forty B. Was Alexander Hamilton or James Madison? We must understand the original intent of the. (laughs) And oh no, it's not the original intent. It's the original understanding. You know, (laughs) let's all get Straussian about some guy with a pocket protector. You know, (laughs) or about about a lawyer, like an RNC lawyer who like just kind of wrote it up. But I I also feel like it doesn't make it doesn't make you excited. Jonah, am I wrong? Didn't you have a fight with somebody who started saying, oh, you Republicans, I thought you believed in original intent or something? I thought it was you. Maybe I might was, have on Twitter. I've had somebody many. Somebody on Twitter many. had some like, oh, you Republicans, so you believe in original intent, but you're not supporting blah, blah, blah. And then you were like, original intent is about the Constitution. You know, it's, <laughs> not, it's, not, about, it's not about the Dungeons and Dragons rule book. You know, <laughs> it's, not, it's not about the Golden Age. It's not about, you know, Universe Prime 2 in the Marvel, you know, Golden Age. Okay, but there's, there's – aside from the rules, right, there's also Robert's rules of order, right? So, so there are going to be people there. Can't you say, you know, uh, motion to suspend and you get a second and you kind of suspend? I mean the Republican convention, can it go on for two or three weeks if they're yeah, not motion to suspend? Yeah, I think we should just suspend? say motion to suspend and just leave everything <laughs> forever. And you could do that, right? There's that amazing was- stuff you can do. Yeah, um, to, to 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 gum up the works if you want to. I mean, there's well, probably I, a bunch of nerds now. The nerds now studying Robert's Rules of Order to see how how we could turn what should be a a very quick suicide pact into the most belabored, uh, you know, revolution and slow motion suicide pact possible. It could be like that. Uh, there's a there's a, an Italian movie of the seventies called La Grande Bouffe, which is about a bunch of people who decide they're going to eat themselves to death, and basically they spend two weeks eating. They're sitting at this banquet. Exactly, exactly. Well, that your slow motion death, though, I hope will take another sixty years. But oh, you know what, guys? Sweet. But Can you know we, what, guys? I'm yeah, sweet, Rob. And you know who Rob is sweet to. And Jonah is sweet too and I am sweet too. We are sweet to our mothers. Let, let's talk about our mothers. My mother who's about to turn 89 is one of the foremost uh, intellectuals of her time. Jonah's mother uh, who is one of the most entertaining people alive and a person who's had a not inconsiderable effect on, the, on, on, on some aspects of recent American history. And Rob's mother, who is a wonderful woman, who among other things gave birth to Rob, and they are all here. Here, and they are all people who will we will be celebrating on Mother's Day. And so, I want to talk to you about Pro Flowers. Pro Flowers, a new advertiser here on Glop. All right, they're no, new. love new advertisers. New. They're new, and uh, you know, since Mom is an expert on everything, the one thing that you can't go to her for advice for is what to get her for Mother's Day. So you'll look like an expert on Mother's Day when you use Pro Flowers. Now you get, Mom, 100 blooms with a free glass vase 
for nineteen ninety nine plus shipping and handling. Which brings up the question: Do you say vase or do you say vase? Because I ordinarily say vase. Really? But then I thought maybe that's just too hoity. You say vase? So establishment. Oh well, oh, yeah. What a- Enjoy your Georgetown cocktail <laughs> that's, that's- parties. That's what we say at the Georgetown. We say, you know, spindly, bring me the vase because uh, Mrs. Carruthers has brought some has brought some cuttings from the Dumbarton Woods garden. You asked the major domo to ask spindly. Exactly. So, so I'll say vase for now. So and make her extra her day extra special by upgrading to a premium vase. And add gourmet chocolates for just nine ninety nine more. Go to pro proflowerscom.com today and use my code, which is, of course, Ricochet. So here's how you do it. You call one eight hundred or you can call eight hundred ProFlowers, or even better, visit proflowers.com. You click the blue microphone in the top right corner and type in Ricochet. That's proflowers.com. Click on the blue microphone in the top right corner. Type in Ricochet. You will be getting, uh, you know, uh, uh, hundred flowers, free glass vase, nineteen ninety nine. If you pay nine dollars and ninety nine more, you're going to get chocolate and a nice vase, an even nicer vase, vase, vuz. So Mother's Day is coming up. <clears throat> Order quickly. So you have – do that order now and it's in place for Mother's Day. You don't have to worry about it ever again. Think about that. Yeah, nice. Do it today. It's there. You forget about it. She's getting those flowers on Mother's Day. So it's not like two days before Mother's Day. You're like, oh my god, I got to get my mother flowers for Mother's Day. And the florist says, well, I'm all booked up on Mother's Day. So you could do it now. Get it over with. Proflowers.com. Type in uh, – click on the blue microphone. Type in Ricochet. You're going to have a great time. So, and we um, thank ProFlowers.com for sponsoring yes. the Glob podcast. And I think I just checked. I think it's it's vase, but it identifies as vase. So you have to call it a vase. <laughs> so you're saying, but here's the important question: which, which bathroom? Oh yeah, let's go into. Can we talk about bathrooms for a minute? Discuss the bathroom issue. I will discuss the bathroom in this way. I am still stunned that the argument about bathrooms and public bathrooms and public accommodations like that comes down to an incredibly tiny number of people are transgendered or trans or any of that. As, as an actual number in terms of its sort of civil – your civil rights being abridged, it's super, super small. I'm surprised it came to that. Far more Ted Cruz voters in Manhattan than – <laughs> yeah, yeah. And what I, what I find so strange is that it never occurred to the feminist movement for 20 or 30 years that there's a natural inequality, as everybody knows who's ever gone to the, the bathroom in a public place, I mean, in a public you know, restroom, um, that there's always a line outside the women's line, women's, and there, men just saunter right in. And so if you were a feminist in the 70s or 80s, I think you'd be agitating for, no, 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 we're all going to have the same stuff. So it's going to be unisex bathrooms or um, individual stalls, which I think most restaurants – a lot of restaurants I see now have individual you – know, each room is its own little room. Uh, and that's how we're going to do it. But now for some reason it's this tiny minority of trans people. I mean you know, they may have a point, but it's, it surprises me it's come to this. Because I've always like seen a big line of women waiting for the bathroom and I thought, ha, 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 ha. And they all kind of look at every guy just sauntering into the men's room and think, this is unfair. 
Well, I think the real story here. Wow, I, I drove you silent. You I, silent. I am silent because I think the real story here is twofold. You have um, a misunderstanding on the part of social conservatives and, a, um, and an overreaction, uh, necessary classic political overreaction on the part of those who are seeking, you know, complete the complete elimination of all distinctions between the genders and uh, a refusal to accept the notion that there are gender distinctions. Um, why, why is there a fight over public accommodations and bathrooms being staged? I presume it is because people in the social conservative community thought and did polling and saw that when they asked people, do you think that people who identify that but are actually uh, want to use the girl's bathroom, is that okay? 80% said, no, it's not okay. So they thought, aha, we've got a great issue here. We've got a 70 to 80% polling issue here, and we can really roll them back on this in terms of a public accommodation. And failing to realize that um, just because an issue polls well in the abstract, when something becomes a political issue in the specific, it becomes divorced from the abstract. And then it becomes this question of whether political pressure can be brought to bear by the forces who who uh, want, want it otherwise, which is exactly what's happened. So what happens in these states that vote that you transgendered uh, female still have to use the men's bathroom if you have, if you have a male member? Um, what happens is that, <clears throat> you know, uh, companies announce they're not going to Put five hundred jobs in your in your state anymore. Is it a strange um, though? It's like a strange. Uh, but I it's, mean, it's, it's, it's literally it's ridiculous. It is a failure of the social compact that we have now seen for three or four years, in which um, nobody on the left believes that it is necessary to accommodate the uh, deeply held uh, religious beliefs of anybody who doesn't uh, fall in line with their social agenda. At the same time, you have social conservatives picking fights that they thought they were going to win that they're going to lose. And I think so it's just a disaster all around. Yeah, I think everything here is going wrong for everybody except <laughs> I think the people who inevitably win. So it doesn't, you know, all they're doing there is just fomenting right. a sense of extreme social division and just trying to rub the noses of the rest of society in their own victories. But I, I, Yeah. Okay, that's my take. Yeah, yeah what yeah. Okay, so I, I think that's largely right. This also, though, feels in a really weird way, very similar to busing to me. There was this moment when, in the what, late 60s, early 70s, where it just seemed obvious to every right-thinking, enlightened person, oh, the way we'll integrate the schools is we'll just bus in poor black kids from poor black neighborhoods into white neighborhoods, and everything will be great, and we'll have integration. And it blew up in everybody's face, and... Three, five years later, they're all looking back on it saying, my God, what were we thinking? And uh, look, I, I have nothing you – know, Deirdre McCloskey, who you know used to be Donald McCloskey, is one of my intellectual heroes. I have really no problem treating people you know, with respect that do this kind of – that do this. You know, that's fine and all the rest. At the same time, um, this is – I think this strikes a lot of normal people as utter – madness the idea that the federal government should be in the business of figuring out bathroom policy at every freaking waffle hut and tgi fridays across this country 
is insane. It's just insane. And it's I, I think that it, it, for for I mean people say how did how did the intellectuals miss the Trump phenomenon? You know. This kind of thing, you know, just wait for one of these things to go south, right? Which I'm not saying – I don't think that every transgender person is a sex offender and everything, you know. But there's going to be some guy going into some girl's bathroom somewhere and it is going to be like – what? remember the, the serial killer who went into the party and, you know, Megan's Law in California and created a huge backlash? There's going to be some bad thing that's going to happen somewhere and so many of these politicians are going to be running for the hills. The second thing is, what the hell is going on with this idea that – I mean I, I thought it was outrageous that businesses weren't allowed um, to use their conscience when it, you know, to invoke their conscience for denying service to anybody. But Bruce Springsteen and Pearl Jam and all these guys are allowed to deny services to um, co- paying customers simply because of their own conscience? I mean, that's what they're doing when they're boycotting North Carolina is they're saying, my conscience forbids me from providing service to Southerners who live in this state. Right. And that is no – philosophically and principally, that is no different than a baker refusing to provide services for a gay wedding. The only major difference is that Bruce Springsteen can afford it and he gets celebrated as a hero and the baker gets you know, denounced as a bigot. And aren't and there now – drives people crazy. <laughs> but I, I just want to talk about – But wait, I, I was just say that aren't there now – more people claiming that they got a they were refused to a cake or 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 there was some kind of slur written on their check or something are there more people claiming that falsely now than are actually claiming it truthfully well there was it the seems case like there, whole, there was this case of a whole foods in austin in which a in which somebody claimed that you know uh, he had gotten a cake with a you know, with, with a, a uh, anti-homosexual with, with slur the word, on. with the word "fag" on it, which is and kind of, of course, it's a hoax. But of no, course, it's a hoax. hoax on the face of it. So, there is, it there is literally no physical way. However, that, I just no, want to let me finish. That the Whole yeah. Foods in Austin. Let's just repeat that. The <laughs> yeah. Whole Foods in Austin would ever put a, that word on a cake and then put it in a box and sell it to somebody. They wouldn't even. Do it if you asked them to do it. So the idea – and this story, instead of the guy being arrested immediately – and thank God for Whole Foods because they're going to sue him. They should sue him. But the idea was that people are now so insanely excited about these violations of their civil rights or their violations of their personhood that they are excitedly inventing them left and right. It's, they're almost like um, you know, alien abductions when there's one or two. Suddenly they're 27 and 30 because people mm-hmm. just get, get the hysteria. They just love it. They just want the attention. I mean <laughs> it is sort but, of this fast Similar hoaxes have been going on on college campuses for right. decades right. now, yeah. and the press buys them every single time. Every time. Yeah. It's true. <laughs> yeah, however, <laughs> however, I just want to push back on one thing. The decision to put the state in the position of making laws governing who goes into what bathroom was a decision of the North Carolina legislature and a law signed by the governor. That is to say – they decided to make a social policy issue out of right. transgendering in bathrooms. If it had not been in this law, if it had been presumed that individual places could deal with it as they wished to and that it was not a matter of state interest who went into which bathroom, 
we wouldn't be having this fight over North Carolina. No, I, I, John, I agree with that. But as, as and I, and I, I think it is a perfectly legitimate reason for social conservatives and libertarians to argue about that at the local level and say, "Hey, guys, let's just let the employers figure this out." I think that is a perfectly fine and credible position to have. At the same time, it doesn't just because North Carolina may or may not have made a mistake, then then justify becoming. A federal issue. You know, you got this judge in Virginia on the Fourth Circuit who's now basically said all of this kind of stuff is illegal on college campuses and college campuses must abide by the federal government, Department of Education's rules about transgender bathrooms. Right. I, you know, as someone who really wants to live in a country where we push most of the, most everything down to the most local level possible, wouldn't it be a, just a more interesting country to say, hey, you know, those guys in North Carolina, they do things weird when it comes to transgender people in bathrooms, not like we smart people in California. Let, let people figure out how they want to live on a local level rather than make all of these things into federal issues. Especially yeah, but of course things. it's not about especially, what's especially. a federal issue and it's not about what's a local issue. None of this is about that, unfortunately. It is about a culture war. Right. In which we sure. have which which we have the the as I say, the sort of the people who wish to eliminate all distinctions between genders and pretend that gender is itself a social construct and all of that are on the are on the march and they are looking to score victories wherever possible and to sure. trumpet their success. And and because they've always been some, the, the aggressors the people, in the culture. War. Right. And so and, – and alas, some of our people are walking directly into their buzzsaw. But they're also creating that – the thing about the North Carolina sure, yeah, law, yeah. Which, was, creating this. which was just a, a way of walking into a buzzsaw, right. creating a controversy that they were going to lose, that they've often won in the past. And that it's as it's I a say, little close to flag burning, right? The idea that there was this mass epidemic of flag burning that we really needed to do something about. Uh, where when it wasn't, I mean, and and I think it's true in this case. Certainly, it's true in the North Carolina uh, situation. But there also is this idea that it is the right and fitting place for government and and even society to regulate how you go to the bathroom. I mean, we are actually we spent now ten minutes talking about you know the potty. That's like how. <laughs> How incredibly degraded is the national conversation and the national culture? You know, Rob. Wait, wait, wait. The progressives and conservatives alike are now obsessed with what goes on in the bathroom. It's just crazy. Right. And it, you know like, what they need to do, Rob? They, they need, need to get obsessed with higher, more important things. And as you know, Rob, that's yes. why we're big fans of the great courses. Yeah. Yeah. We're now transitioning away from bathrooms. We're going from low to high. We're going from the ridiculous to the sublime, which is why we're excited to tell you about their new video learning service, The Great And Courses. when you say transitioning, you mean something different than what we were just <laughs> yeah, talking about. Yeah, yeah. Yes, we're, I, I, we're I mean, I mean in the word transition in the classic sense oh, that you learn you. if you take The Great Courses. And if you take their new video learning service, The Great Courses Plus, you can learn about everything and everything, including the proper meaning of the word transition, with unlimited access to the Great Courses lecture series on thousands of topics taught by top professors. We really want you to try the Great Courses Plus. So we're giving our listeners a special chance to watch their popular course, Influence, Mastering Life's Most Powerful Skill, like how to get people to do what you want to in relation to bathrooms, and hundreds of other courses absolutely free. With the Great Courses Plus... Watch as many different lectures as you want, anytime, anywhere. 
And the Great Courses Plus is offering our listeners a chance to stream hundreds of their courses, including Influence Mastering Life's Most Powerful Skill, taught by award-winning Professor Kenneth Brown, a great toolkit to help master the powers of influence and persuasion, both personally and professionally. It's $170 value for free when you go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash glop. That is thegreatcoursesplus.com slash glop. Don't forget the word plus. Very important. Thegreatcoursesplus.com slash glop. Start watching today. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash glop. And we thank the Great Courses for sponsoring glop. And now for another transition to a different subject, Jonah's favorite subject, zombies. And we're not talking about zombie presidents, zombie candidacies. We're talking about actual fake fictional zombies of a very terrifying part because apparently our listeners are dying. They're sweating. They're schwitzing. They're sick to their stomach with anticipation to know how Jonah Goldberg feels about I don't know, The Walking Dead, Fear the Walking Dead, Eat the Walking Dead, Schwitz with the Walking don't, Dead. Don't have, eat the Walking brunch, Dead. Don't eat right. the Walking Dead. Right, right. Go to don't. shul with the Walking Dead. Right. The jogging have, Walking Dead. Have a Seder with the Walking Dead. So, Jonah, please, yes. let us know about The Walking Dead. And I'm well, stepping back. Uh, for starters, I highly recommend to uh, readers who care deeply about such issues, I had a piece, the last issue of the ha- of National Review, I wrote my Happy Warrior column on uh, Manser Olson and his view of, uh, de- of of economic development and The Walking Dead, um, which we can discuss if you like. But I, you know, they had the season finale, which was not great of The Walking Dead, and uh, ended on a kind of lame cliffhanger. Uh, we don't know which one of Rick's crew or Rick himself who has been murdered. Um, and it was kind of, it was just, it kind of fell short and we've had the season premiere and the first two episodes of fear of the walking dead. And it was interesting last night. I finally watched the second episode and I tweeted, um, that the biggest problem with fear of the walking dead is that none of the main ca- characters are, are likable. Like you, you're kind of rooting for the zombies. Right. And, um, <clears throat> the only two really like only two compelling characters one is um this former this old man who's a was it hector not hector alizondo i can't remember the actor's name but this this south american immigrant who turns out was like the interrogator for a death squad who like so that's at least interesting and he's kind of jaded and he's ready for the apocalypse because he's willing to do whatever will be done and this mysterious character named strand who's got some ulterior motive, but he too has sort of been preparing for the apocalypse and is willing to do what it's done. At least those guys stolen, are compelling characters. Thievery, stolen. It's all stolen. I, I, I haven't watched it, but that's a total ripoff of Lost. Total ripoff of Lost. Lost had a, character, had a character who was, a, who was an Iraqi torturer and a character named Locke who was a secret preparing for the apocalypse guy yep. with secret mysteries. Yep. So it's a ripoff. I'm calling it a ripoff. Yeah, except except we there know were no zombies that- on Lost, and Lost was a terrible, you know. And I'm it sounds to me like wait, wait. the Walking Dead is going the Lost well, direction of becoming incredibly. Well, finish finish, finish your thought there. Yeah, so, yeah. So the, the 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 problem with that is that we know it's not all a dream, right? We know it's not at all a completely bogus waste of five years of my life like Lost was. But 
Um, <laughs> I'm so I'm still That's so six, bitter about loss. Six wow. years. Six years. Six years. Um, I mean, I, I still, if I knew where J.J. Abrams lived or whoever it was that did that, I'd be driving out and putting a burning bag of dog poop on his front step every day. Anyway, um, um, and so the and the, the, the thing that drives me crazy, I was talking to my wife about this last night, is I understand that there is probably a big chunk of like the 20-something bro fans of the Walking Dead franchise who love it just for the zombie kill of the night. What was the coolest zombie kill and all kinds of that stuff is really starting to bore me. I just, I get it. Okay. You can come up with interesting new ways to kill zombies. Max Brooks, who wrote world war Z, which was flawed, but really interesting. um, He explained what his motivation was. He always thought that the thing that was most interesting about zombie movies were like the 10 minutes before it became an action movie where they had these little glimpses of the newscasts and right. like public officials dealing with the problem. Right. And there are a lot of people like me who actually find, you know, like Dan Dresner wrote a whole book about zombies and international relations who find that kind of backstory more interesting and, and dialogue right. more interesting. And they do so little of it in both franchises. You know, if, if I mean, given how much time I spend in this reality talking about zombie preparedness with my friends and family <laughs> – you would think that in the actual zombie apocalypse, there would be a lot more dialogue about, like, what would be a good defensible location. You know? <laughs> um, well, but even what, though, but, but, you're, but you're right. The wind up to all that stuff is like I am kind of obsessed with, um, you know, the, 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 the worldwide killer virus, which is really just, you know, that's, that's the first act of every zombie picture or every zombie story is there's right. this thing and it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And there was an incredibly great. Um, Steven Soderbergh movie called Contagion that was great because it was it, it was boring it was all that. and it was yeah. all that and I was like it was like I, I watched it I think I, nobody saw it I, I when I was in the I theater, saw it, it was I saw it it was a big hit a it was a big hit was and it a big B, hit really I praised it yes yeah well there were six people in the theater when I saw it and uh, I just was I thought it was incredibly incredibly riveting however I did um, but everybody I talked to about not about Fear of the Walking Dead but The Walking Dead. Um, makes a larger point that it is a conservative show because they're trying to recreate society and you're learning that you just – just good intentions aren't enough. Um, but I, I was uh, – I did this thing in Harvard um, last week, uh, last weekend and I um, – Look at one you, of the Cornell, there. Harvard. Yeah. I mean I'm the, it's a tour of the Ivy League and um, – and someone said to me, he said, hey, have you, have you ever noticed that there's a correlation? This guy, this, I forget his name. I, he didn't tell me his name. He's done extensive research into vampire movies and zombie movies. And he says that vampire movies are popular uh, under Republican or economically conservative administrations. And zombie movies uh, get popular under Democrat and liberal administrations. And he says that the correlation is pretty much one-to-one. Is absolutely – he says ironclad because uh, Republican – during a Republican era, what you fear is like old rich people sucking your blood. And under uh, Democrats, what you fear is uh, this bureaucratic uh, mob. The mob. The mob. The mo- yeah, the, mo- the, the mob. The mob. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, by the way, to uh, – just to – uh, strengthen the point that uh, anyone who investigates w- werewolf and zombie movies and vampire movies for a living and as an academic uh, should be taken out and shot uh, behind the bushes uh, is the fact that the world's foremost expert on Dracula is Naomi Wolf's father. 
So I just want to make really? How, What do you mean an expert on Dracula? How are you an he expert? Is, he is the world's expert on Dracula. He's written 10 books on Dracula, on Bram Stoker's Dracula, on the Dracula myth, on Dracula, Schmackula, Blackula, Schmackula, anything you can get to. Uh, Let's Jackie Wilson, Mason, the, by the way, when you do that. Thank you very much. Schwitzing with, Bra- with Dracula. I was going to go Dracula. have a deli with Dracula. But let the record show that I was the first person to get, break into the Yiddish in this podcast. I said Oive, and neither yes, one of you did. mentioned it. Yes, you did. And I think what's most important about the entire subject of zombies on television is this. Oh, yeah, I don't. I disagree. Boring. I, disagree. I think it's but fascinating you know because not boring wait, wait, this Sunday. That, oh, season six. I almost of Game of Thrones. Wait, wait, oh, wait a minute! I thought you were going to segue into a spot. You just wanted to I did do too. Like a snoring I noise. Forget no, it. I mean, and by the way, no, there are there, there, there are zombies on the on Game of Thrones, John. Called, well, that's uh, the lo- that's the worst part of Game of Thrones. That is true, but I just wanted to make that put that out there. And I think that you're turn- you're using zombies as like a, um, a in a narrow sense, it, 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 especially even in the Max Brooksian sense. It like they refers to people who are, who have the contagion, human beings who have the contagion, who you recognize physically mostly. You know that that you re- recognize who they were, and they aren't that anymore. And that I think is endlessly fascinating. Endlessly fascinating um, because it happens – people feel a little bit like that all the time. You, we've all had that experience when suddenly you see somebody you know and they just seem like what happened to you? Um, well, see, that's why – that's more body snatchers, right? Are you referring are you referring yeah, but it's kind of the feeling, to right? um, radio talk show hosts who suddenly supported Trump after 25 years of talking about conservative <laughs> principles? No, but that's a really good that, point. Is that what you're referring to? No, but yeah. I, I'm not referring to that specifically, but that is a very, very good point, right? It's, it's the same kind of – the kernel of that feeling is the same. It's like, oh my god, this is getting worse and worse. <laughs> I need to get to the high ground. I can trust no one. By the way, one I, thing about I, I, the, I one thing so, about the so, bros. Wait, 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 John. What are you saying? So I, I, I think this, this is this is actually because I mean I, I I disagree entirely with John about whether this stuff is interesting. I find it endlessly fascinating, and I spent about a year thinking about writing a a novel in response to World War Z, um, sort of a revisionist history of the zombie war, which I thought would have been a fun book to do. But um, the difference is is that. Um, the zombie stuff appeals to the part of the brain that is the prepper part, right? Is the survivalist part. What happens when everything goes to crap and we got to fend for ourselves, right? It's sort of the same part of your brain that is appealed to by Red Dawn and by virus contagion things and zombie movies. That's all that part of the brain. The part of the brain that you're talking about in terms of people who've been, you know, replaced, that's, that is a much more sort of like a Third Reich phobia, right? Invasion of the Body Snatchers, which was the classic Cold War film along these lines, is all about these people who like seem like you're the same guy you've known all your life. All of a sudden, you can't understand where they're coming from. They they're not trying to bite you. They're not you know crazed zombies trying to kill you. But they believe stuff that you know the real one would never believe. And that is that is a sort of a slightly different genre, which I also I love. You know, this, this sort of invasion of the body snatcher genre, which I'm amazed that they keep remaking it and they keep remaking it pretty badly. Right. Because um, right. it seems to be so perfect for a good movie um, or even a good TV series. But it's, uh, still, the, the, it's still the feeling of, of non-recognition. In every zombie picture or moment or TV show, there's always that point at which you have to kill the person who you know. 
but it isn't that person anymore. The person's been contagious or that person's gotten bitten by the thing or whatever. But like you recognize that you know that that's that person, but you're going to have to do what you have to do. And, okay, and, well, and, the, and the best movies, uh, which were 28, 28 uh, weeks later, which is the sequel to 28 Days Later, which, which is, is terrific. The best, yeah, feature. which is great. Yeah, but 28 weeks great. later, and this is a spoiler alert, I haven't seen it. There is an incredibly powerful moment where you think – you basically go into that movie thinking, OK, this is a metaphor for American military, abro- military adventures abroad and the Americans have come into the UK. The entire island of, of, of Great Britain has been infected and the Americans have now established a green zone. They even call it a green zone in London and the rule is if you leave the green zone, you can't come back. And if you come back, if you left the green zone, you're going to have to be killed. And the message of that movie is – that those rules must be obeyed no matter what, even right. if the little boy was just trying to see his mother, even right. if he's cute and sweet and you don't shoot a child in the head, you must shoot the child in the head. That to me was the most extraordinary thing about that, pic- that picture and incredibly moving too because eventually we are all 12, 24, 48 hours away from some bizarre virus in some benighted part of China or Africa. And when it happens, and he keeps little percolations here and there, right, Uh, Ebola and Zika and all this stuff, when it happens, we're going to have to be really, really, really ruthless about – About dealing with the – about dealing with the talk show hosts who have to spend 25 years supporting (laughs) conservative principles suddenly start praising Trump. Now, uh, let me ask you a question. Okay, How many emails do you have in your inbox right now? 100, 1,000, 20,000? I'm the wrong person to ask because I have an email solution. Go right ahead. You do have an email solution, but if your email is anything like mine used to be, the answer is too many. But here's the thing. Even though I knew I wanted to do something about it, I didn't know how. I knew I'd miss something important if I just deleted them all, but there were too many emails to go through one at a time. Then Rob Long finally let me in on his secret to reaching Inbox Zero and taking back email sanity and this podcast, Rob Long and this podcast. It's called SaneBox. I can't recommend it enough. Sorts through your email, moves all the trivial stuff into a different folder so the only messages in your inbox are the ones you actually want to see. Aside from removing all of the junk so you can focus on messages that matter, there's this thing called the black hole. Move an email into that folder and you'll never hear from that sender again. It's so rewarding. We all use SaneBox. We, uh, Rob and I use SaneBox and have worked out a great deal for you, our listeners. Visit SaneBox.com slash ricochet today. And they'll throw in an extra $25 credit on top of the two-week free trial that you get if you're just a normal non-ricochet person. You don't have to enter your credit card information unless you decide to buy. So there's nothing to lose. Check it out today. You'll love the black hole. You'll reach in box zero. Again, that's sanebox.com slash ricochet. S-A-N-E-B-O-X dot com slash ricochet. Now, I want to put one final thing before we go. You're talking about how the bros love zombie fight. You know, who would the zombie kill? Mm-hmm. And I, having seen some uh, more recent uh, Batman versus Superman or something, and I'm watching the Supergirl series with my daughters, which is not bad. But I do not understand the amount of time that these movies spend on having people who cannot be injured punching each other. Can you <laughs> – Jonah, you're a comic book guy. So I'm yeah. talking about watching the Avengers punch each other. 
It doesn't make it. There are scenes for five minutes. They're punching you. They're throwing each other against the wall. They're, 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 they're pounding each other into the pavement. They can't get hurt. They can't die. They sort of go, Ugh, but then they get up and they, then they punch each other again. Even if they're not immortal like Iron Man or Batman, somehow they mystically are able to heal from injuries <laughs> in moments. So – why what what is going on here? Do people like these fight scenes? I mean a fight scene somebody has to be able to lose a fight for a fight scene to be at all effective, no? I, I agree. I think part of it is it just it it they like the sort of uh bringing the the two dimensional fantasy of the comic book to the screen and actually seeing it going on. But I agree with you. I, I like the fights with the much lesser characters who can actually bleed. Um, and but I gotta say, this has been a peeve of mine about movies in general for years. Every, I mean, we've all grew up on movies where and TV shows where it's like one punch and you knock some dude out, and then he wakes up like three minutes later, and then he gets up and he runs. That's a concussion. I mean, that that's a serious injury. <laughs> yeah. If you've been knocked unconscious, you don't just hop out and like. Now that we know about concussions, you know, Captain Kirk should have been sort of a, a vegetable by the end of season one, you know? Um, and it's, it's it happens all the time. And, and, and all of these movies where guys, you know, they jump – like Harrison Ford and Fugitive, he goes off that waterfall when he jumps away from Tommy he Lee Jones. The water. <laughs> and I don't, I, don't, I don't mind that he doesn't die, right? Because, I mean, then the movie would end. So he, yeah. I have him survive. Yeah. But he doesn't break a pinky. He doesn't yeah. scratch his face, you know, and that's the other thing. People who get into these get vicious, wet. vicious, vicious fist fights, right, where they're trading blows for like fifteen minutes, right. and like if you've ever been punched in the face, you get a black eye, you know, you swell up, and it's always interesting to me in how many TV shows and movies where they take that seriously, like in The Walking Dead, you know, like guys' eyes swell up shut. And they, you know, they actually get hurt when they get punched. But in most action movies, most action TV shows, getting punched it, like means nothing. Maybe you get a little scratch over your eye. I, I Which can't is weird punch. because, especially weird because I, I mean, it's just speaking for myself. Last night I was uh, walking in, 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 it was dark, and I at Yale. No, no, Columbia. <laughs> <laughs> um, keep going, uh, and I <laughs> and I smashed my little toe. Against the coffee table, which everybody's done, and it's crippling. Oh. It's crippling. It's really it's the, the end. worst. It's like, the I worst. would not last in any of these movies because I'm ready. I was ready to throw in the towel right then. I thought, oh, I've got to call nine one one. I it was absolutely the most painful thing I've ever experienced um, that I can remember <laughs> because I put it all out of my head. But I, I did. You're right. Yeah, like I mean, the a punch to the face really hurts. Ribs. You know, you, yeah. I hear this all the time in movies. I've, like there's some of these things, these cliches that I just I, – I now I can't look past. It pulls me out of immersion of, in a movie or TV mm-hmm. show. It's like when cars and all these old 70s, 80s, 90s cop shows don't have the rear view mirror in the center of the windshield because yeah, yeah, that's yeah. where the camera is and it just, yeah. I, I hate that. I hate how in so many TV shows and movies, it is obvious that the coffee cups, like from Starbucks or wherever, are empty. Yeah. The they way are. they handle them, it's just they're clearly yeah. like full of air. It drives me crazy. And when people say, oh, it looks like you broke a couple ribs, um, and as <laughs> if like, like you, can then, you can still go out there and yeah. chase down. You can still go dancing. Yeah. I had a hairline fracture of a rib last year, and there were moments when I coughed. 
that if there was a revolver near me, I would have blown my brains out. <laughs> well, you know, and then of course then there's. But the you're not really making the point. What you're really making the point is that when I hit my little toe, or you have a, you got like a little cracked rib. They were both big babies. Well, that yeah, I'm. Yeah, that's part of it. Sure. Well, yeah, you're a big course, baby, then, there's, then there's then there's the magical inanimate object. You know, the uh, the magical car, the car that could fly thirty feet through the air and then land and then keep driving. But see, right. I don't. Right. Or that you can have cars smashing into each other on a yeah, highway, and somehow, and somehow, the the right panel doesn't, you know, bend in and therefore make it impossible for the right wheel to rotate. Sure. See, which I is don't actually what would happen. Stuff. And I know we're wrapping up, but I've just since you brought up the things that bug you, here's what bugs me. Two things bug me. One is someone at a computer mailbox. Uh, yeah, someone uh, <laughs> at a, uh, someone uh, at, a, at a computer terminal. Uh, talking to someone else who's running around saying, wait a minute, I'm, I'm, I'm pulling up the building plans. Okay, there's a stairway to the left. I hate that. Yeah. I hate it. I actually yeah, First of all, it's like, which left? Yeah, this, a moment, how, yeah. How, do they know, how do they know where he is? And there's a moment when I shouted out in a, in a movie theater. I was so disgusted. A very good actor in a, in a pretty good picture. I, it was one of the Bourne movies, David Strathairn, Strathairn, whatever his name is. Good actor. And he plays the evil guy. And... Um, and at one point, they're, they're, they're showing Bourne running around, doing exactly the shit that I hate, stuff that I hate, sorry. And one, and one moment, he says, all right, we're going mobile, people. Get the mobile units ready. And then everybody runs because they apparently know what that means. And the cars are right there, and they're already like, you know, easy to get to out of the parking lot. And they're in the middle of Manhattan, and they're these big black uh, navigators or, or suburbans. And just that, that whole idea that... I think comes from the movies or people in Hollywood or maybe even just their liberals in general that, that basically everything works. Right. Adults are competent and government's going to work and no one's going to sleep and no you're the, your Starbucks cup if you're in the government isn't going to like kind of spit out hot coffee like mine does all the time. and Like even if it's not even full for some reason, it spits out hot coffee and gets on your thumb and then you smell coffee on yourself all day. Like that never right. happens. The lid well, is the, never stained. Like it's all just it, perfect because they're we're for the government and the government's perfect. Two things on that. One is in that Bourne movie – the whole thing that starts the entire um, wheel of the Leviathan national security state spinning is someone just used the phrase Blackbriar over a cell phone. <laughs> yeah. And that's yeah. all it takes for the NSA to know to spin out of control and attack. But yeah. the other thing about the, the world being perfect, this is another one of my little peas. I talk to my daughter about this all the time where you have all of these romantic comedy movies where these unbelievably beautiful women – can't find a date for like New Year's Eve, you know, <laughs> where, yep. you know, that if, or in the high school, the high school girls that if, right. that, who are unbelievably hot, but they don't know it because they have a ponytail and glasses. And that's right. all it takes, you know, to take that off and become the most beautiful person in the world. Well, that was always the love boat. The love boat was always, uh, you know, they, they, uh, the, the guest, the, the guest stars were always the, whoever the hot supermodel was at the time, and then an older female movie star. And that the hot supermodel, was play the older female movie star's secretary, and she was always right. with a ponytail, glasses. And then finally, someone said, "Let me take off those glasses. Let your hair down. Oh my God, you're beautiful. <laughs> right. uh, me, me." And then, <laughs> so like, yeah. But even that stuff is for me is much better than we're going mobile, people. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. well gentlemen, we are going mobile because we have to wrap yes. this up. I do want to point out that we will spend about 45 minutes of the next show talking about season six of Game of Thrones, which I think we're all obsessed with. So we don't just have to have a couple of people talking about a zombie show that only one of us watches. Um, the most watched show on television, just yeah, for the record. I, I, I know, but it's got zombies on it, and they bore me. Anyway, so Game of Thrones is starting on Sunday, and uh, and we will be back next month to discuss Game of Thrones and the horrible Game of Republican Collapse and the uh, hilarious Game of Democratic uh, Dominance under a person nobody really wants to be president and other topics of amusement to many and depression to most so jonah you're a great man rob you're you're also a great man man. you're an okay man even though you spend enormous amounts of time hanging around ivy league campuses and uh i'm john podhoritz and we'll talk to you next month go mobile people (laughs) (laughs) well no one told me about her the way she lied Well, no one told me about how many people cried. But it's too late to say you're sorry. How would I know? Why should I care? Please don't bother trying to find her. She's not there. Well, let me tell you about the way she looked, the way she acted, the color of her hair. Her voice was soft and cool. Ricochet. Join the conversation. Well, no one told me about her. What could I do? Well, no one told me about her. Well, they all knew. But it's too late to say you're sorry. How would I know? Why should I care? Please don't bother trying to find her. She's not there. Well, let me tell you about the way she looked, the way she acted, the color of her hair. Her voice was soft and cool, her eyes were clear and bright, but she's not there. So